Last week, we looked through the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2. And during that time, we looked at our example, Jesus Christ. But not just everything about him, because if we did 11 verses, it wouldn't be able to contain everything that we can know as far as how we're supposed to follow Jesus in our lives. And I don't know about you guys, but if if someone was going to tell me how to play a sport or how to do my job or something like that, you know, if somebody said, hey, I want you to invent the next greatest cell phone, the iPhone, but I want you to go to the next level. And I started from scratch, never having made a phone or designed anything electronically. And they said, it's no problem. Here's an example. Look at, um, who's the guy from Apple, the, the main, he passed away. Steve Jobs. Look at Steve Jobs. Look at his life, how he lived. Look at the way that he designed. Look at the team he's got. Okay, now go do that. If that's all they did, they said, here's your example. Look at Steve Jobs. I want you to imitate what he did. It would leave you feeling like this is impossible, right? So in the same way, in Christianity, if we were, you know, people are like, well, what, what, what would Jesus do? Well, th- that's not really fair. He was the son of God. He, you know, he, I mean, he was God in human flesh. So for me to imitate him seems like the impossible goal. So give me something I can relate to because I can't relate to this. Jesus is everything. He spoke and a storm calmed. He spoke and people were healed from miles away. So how do I compete with that? And the, the idea is that we can't. We're not God. If you ever read the Gospels and you're, you're discouraged because you're like, I can't live up to that, it, that should be the case. You should be humbled. Anytime someone sees Jesus, really sees Jesus, it should not cause them to go, I got that down. It should actually bring you to your knees if you get a vision of the Lord. Do you get you just see Jesus for who he really is, it should cause you to fall to your knees and go, I'm not worthy. I can't, uh, I, I don't deserve it. I can't obtain to it. I, I phew, Stick me in a corner because I'm done. You know, stick a fork in me. I'm o- it's over. And, and that's the case. That, that should bring us to our knees when we hear about Jesus and we see the stories and how he flipped the world upside down. One man with 12 impossible and immature guys we should be humbled in the in the sight of that but let's not stop there because paul doesn't stop in philippians chapter 2 with just the example of jesus he says okay so jesus might seem too much for you but let's look at the guys that he invested in and then the guys that they invested in filled with the holy spirit and look at what they did and what i want you to get out of this study today more than anything is any person fully surrendered to following Jesus and obeying what he's told us in his word can be just as effective as every person we're going to read about today. And so in Philippians chapter 2, it says, and we're going to read through the first part again, he says, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and mercy, which there is, all of those things, He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. There's a call here from Paul to the Philippian church, and I believe it's for us as well, for unity within the body of Christ. He says, if God has so loved us through Jesus Christ, 
then let there be one-mindedness. Let there be like-mindedness. He says, do this by having the same love that we've been first shown by Jesus. He says, having the same love, being of one accord, meaning marching in a line together, and of one mind, having one center for what's guiding us and what we're doing. And then he says this, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And then he says, but in lowliness, he's contrasting. He says, don't let it be done this way, but let it be done this way. He says, let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit, or the idea would be uh, selfishness, essentially. But then he says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you esteem others better than yourself. Don't look at yourself as number one, but look at other people as another one. Remember that chapter two of Philippians is all about others. That's the key phrase, the key word. And in chapter one, it was all about Jesus. So if we make our lives all about Jesus, the main point from last week is that our life will be about others and not ourselves first. Jesus, others, and then what we're going to go on to is then yourself, last. When, when the call comes in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. See, we get it backwards. We go, I'm going to get my house in order. I'm going to take care of me and mine. And then I'll go and serve the, the Lord. But if we do that, what we're doing is we're seeking first our own kingdom, and then... Jesus last. And if you try to spell joy backwards, it's yaj. It's not even a word. Joy is spelled Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And so if that is the case, what I want you to look at today as we kind of revamp and then go on, he, this is the key to this chapter. Verse 3 through 4. Let nothing be done through selfishness or conceit, but in lowliness or humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, and then he caps it off with verse 4. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He doesn't say ignore your interests. He doesn't say be a bad steward. He says, but don't just look out for yourself. If you're thinking about yourself all the time, you're always going to clash with other people. And that's the same in the church or outside of the church, at work, anywhere you go. Yesterday is a prime example. If I am only looking out for myself, and I'm using a power tool, I'm going to knock somebody down if I'm not considering that there might be other people around me that could also get hurt. You know, if I come down the, up the stairs with a big old load of lumber or something or blocks and somebody gets in the way, I just keep going because I'm like, heck with them. Somebody gets hurt. And we th obviously we see that physically in a, con in a context like that. But spiritually, the things, same thing happens. If we don't consider each other one another, what happens is we end up knocking each other down in the process of our spiritual growth. We end up knocking people over and they lose out and we lose out. They get pushed away from the body of Christ. And so here we are. This is the main point of today's passage. Let nothing be done through selfishness, but in humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So when we read verse 
5 through 11, that's what Jesus was doing. His whole life was not about himself, it was about others. And he came here, the very purpose for his being on earth was for others, for the people, the objects of his love. So when he, he did that, he said, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. He doesn't just leave us with, don't be selfish and serve others. He says, let's work on our attitude first. I, I stumbled with it last week, but you've heard people say, attitude determines your latitude, you know? And that's the case with Jesus Christ. Because he was willing to humble himself, look what happens. He dies, he's buried, and then he's exalted. He's resurrected on the third day. He humbled himself in the sight of God, and then God, by the power of the Spirit, lifted him up. And you and I are the same case. Because our lives, when we are born as infants, only end in death, we need to be born again, John chapter 3. And because we are born again, we've humbled ourselves, we've come to Christ for salvation, we've entered into the narrow gate, the beauty of it is, through humility comes exaltation. Because when we die, it's not about the grave. It's about being brought up, resurrected, and we will see the Father. We will enter into heaven, a place of exaltation. Not because of anything we've done, but because everything that Jesus has done for us. So our own salvation is a product of someone laying down his own rights, leaving heaven, leaving a throne room, and coming down here with us maggots. Now we don't look at it like that. We go, well, he left heaven and come down here. It's pretty great but we don't know what heaven's like if we think that. He left everything. He left being a king to come down and die for us. Not just to come down and tell us some good things, but to die. If he doesn't die and raise again, none of his message even matters. He gives us a new life. So in chapter 2, and here in verse 5, he lays it out. He says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ. This was the reason he was so effective, because he had the mind of Christ, which is an attitude of humility, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And we talked about that. Basically, what he's saying there is, even though he was God and is God, he did not consider his godliness or his position something to be clinched to, to the point of being selfish. He let go of it. And because he let go of it, it says there, um, taking the form of a bond slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient. Jesus didn't ever have to experience obedience. He never had to do it. They were just, the tri triune God is always in agreement with himself. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there's no like committee meetings where they vote two to one. They're always in agreement with each other. But in this case, what he says is, when he came down in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He was obedient to the Father. He said, I come to do the will of the Father in everything. He didn't get to decide what he did. Have you ever heard people say, hey, this is my life, I'm going to do what I want with it? Jesus never thought that way. You know what he thought? I come to do the will of the Father. And then it wasn't just something he said, it was something he did in everything. He was praying, he was seeking the Lord. When they went to find him in the mornings, they couldn't find him as disciples. You know where they found him? He was praying. He wanted to know the Father's will for that day, for each moment he was going to come in contact with. And he had long days, you know. I, I, I've worked some long days, 
not as long as some of you. You know, Stacy's been working seven twelves. Jesus worked longer than that. He was never off the clock. He didn't punch a clock. <laughs> I think in my job, and I'm like, I'm punching a clock. And I compartmentalize things. He did everything seeking the will of the Father. But then, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, which was the most humiliating death you could experience. It was in front of everybody. They didn't look up at that cross and go, wow, that guy's probably pretty great. They looked at that cross and they thought, what we think of when we watch Green Mile, that guy was probably a pretty bad guy. You know, sitting in the electric chair, he's condemned. You see somebody with prison clothes on, you make all kinds of assumptions. That guy's a bad guy. Jesus, he, he was on the cross that people saw a prisoner. They saw a criminal. They saw somebody that they thought, if he's up there, he must have done something bad to earn it. But he didn't. And you know what? He never once said, hey, I didn't really earn this. I don't really deserve this. He never said that. Instead, what he did is he looked at each one of us. He looked at all the people surrounding him, and he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Merciful, gracious, kind. And so he says in verse 9, Therefore God has also highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue will confess, should confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So all of this leading to glory of the Lord in Jesus, praising the name of Jesus, but not even for Jesus. It says there, to the glory of God the Father. So when we give thanks for Jesus, we're really giving glory to the one who sent Jesus. And at the same time, we're giving thanks to Jesus because he submitted his life to giving it up for you and I at the will of his father. He was an obedient son. And I love that. So therefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, he's speaking to the Philippian church now. He says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So let's stop there. He commends them. He says to them, as you have always done the will of God, as you have always obeyed the commands of God, he says, not as in my presence only, not just when I'm watching, but so much more now that I'm not watching. Now, you can imagine that he's speaking to a mixed multitude, more than likely. Some of them are going, I haven't been obedient when you're not looking. I'm only doing it because you're standing there. But he says to them, and he commends to them, hey, that you would be obedient to the Lord is the idea, not to Paul. Paul says, I don't want you to please me. I want you to please the Lord. One of the biggest uh, concerns that I have when I'm discipling, where I'm investing in a, a person or a family, is that they would... Follow the Lord, not because I said so, not because I'm a pastor, but they would follow the Lord out of a sincere heart and want to do it on their own. When I say I kick it off five years from now, I want to know that for eternity, these people are walking with the Lord. Otherwise, it was all in vain. If you're following the Lord because somebody expects you to do so, it's in vain. It does, it, God's not pleased with that. But if you're following the Lord because you have a deep conviction, you want to please Jesus, that's going to be the conviction 
that builds character. That's going to be the conviction that stands out the storms. When the, the spiritual leader in your life is no longer there, you know, then you'll find out what you really trust in. And Paul says to them, he says to these Philippians, he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, he's going from what he sees when he's with them. He says, but not as in my presence only, not just when I'm around, but now much more in my absence. And then he commends them, he challenges, he charges them, that's the word. He charges them just like a general would. He says this, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do you know that your salvation is something you got to work out? Salvation is not something we work to earn. Let me make that distinction. He's not saying work to earn your salvation because that would be heresy. (laughs) We can't. I can't stack up enough blocks to get up to heaven. I can't do it. I can't build a, a tower tall enough. I can't do enough good works on one side of the scale that outweighs all the bad stuff I've ever done. It doesn't work that way. Ephesians chapter 2 says that. God's salvation is a free gift. Nobody can boast about it because it's a free gift. He won't let you pay for it. You can't. But then he says this, and this is in the same Bible we read. It doesn't contradict it. He says, work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a personal thing you got to deal with. Each one of us is responsible for our own salvation. Not the earning of it, but the working out of it to its completion. In chapter 1, Paul has already written this. He says in verse 6, being confident of this very thing. Paul was confident in this, and we can be too. I'm confident, he says, that he who has begun a good work within you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So if he's going to be the one that's faithful to complete it, what do I got to do, right? Let go and let God. Here's the problem with that. It's not about letting go and letting God. If you let go while you're driving, the car goes off the road. We have a responsibility to take the salvation we've been given and to bring it through, to work it out. And the idea of working it out is like when you get a math problem in in a math class. Now, most of us aren't in math classes, right? You know, most of us aren't doing that anymore. But my point is the teacher says, here's the problem. I've given you everything you need to work this through to completion. Do it. Now, they've also taught you, right? They've taught you how to do the problem with a different variation and different variables. But when they bring it to, through to completion, it's done. But if you don't do that, you don't get any credit for it. Now, that's just an analogy. You can only take that so far. But my point is, is God has provided for us salvation in Jesus Christ. It can be had in no other name. But because he's provided for it, we still have a portion to do. Think about this building we just purchased we purchased it's the church's building it's not mine it's not steve's it's not jesse's it's not any of ours it's the lord's but we kind of it's ours he's given it to us right we can take this building he's given to us and go hey god gave it to us let's let go and let him change it but if we don't get our hands dirty the thing doesn't change it's still got problems it's still not useful for what we want to use it for so god has yes given us the building But there have been many people who have put in many hours to make sure that that building was purchased. If I got the text message with the picture and we never went and looked at it, if we went and looked at it, but we never went to the bank and asked for money, you know what I'm saying? You see where I'm getting at? If If we just see what God's given us and we never do anything with it, 
we can't bring it to completion. And so God says, I've given you this, now work it out. Do with it what you're supposed to do with it. And so he says that. He says, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Ah, we got the question of sovereignty. God's in control of everything and I don't have to do anything. And free will, I'm in charge. I got to work this thing out. So when people ask me, do you believe in free will or God's sovereignty? I always say yes. And there are volumes of books written on free will versus God's sovereignty. God's completely in control, and yet I have responsibility to do what I'm supposed to do as a man of God, right? So if that's the case, if someone ever asks you that, take them to this verse. Because in these two verses, it seemingly says two opposite things. It seemingly says, work out your salvation, you got to earn it. And then in the next verse, it also seemingly says, God's going to do it. You can just lay back in the lounge chair. Hey, look at me. I'm saved, and God's going to change me. But if I never respond to the word of God that he's given me, then nothing happens. I'm the same jacked up mess with mold in the basement. You know, God wants to remove that stuff. If it was supposed to be done at the beginning, most of us would be struck dead on first day. God said, okay, you're saved. Are you right now? Most of us, in reality, we go, no. Ronnie, you're always telling me I'm under construction still. And that's the case for all of us. We will be under construction until the day we see Jesus face to face. And he says, enter into the joy of your Lord. No more work can be done at that point. We are what we are. But the beauty of it is there's grace. God pours out his love on us. And we are made everything we were ever supposed to be in Christ. That's the beauty of it. But in the meantime, we have a responsibility to take what we've been given and use it to its fullness. This salvation we've been given is such a, a precious gift. He says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So the case is that God has to first do a mighty work within us before he can ever work through us. Did you know that? Look at some of the greats in the Bible. Moses. Moses was used to lead the children of God out of Egypt in the land of bondage into the promised land. But does anybody know anything about his life before the Charlton Heston movie days when he became famous? Moses was a man raised up in slavery. His mom got rid of him, put him in the Nile River, saying, well, God's going to take care of him. She would not put him to death because they were told, kill the children of the Israelites. When, as soon as they're born, put them to death. His mom said, well... He's yours, Lord, and put him out on the river hoping someone would pick him up and take him up as his own. Well, it just so happened that the wife of Pharaoh did so and raised him as his own. And so Moses was raised in, the child, in, in, in Egypt in the, in the best of homes. And he knew something about him. I don't know why, but he knew that he was supposed to be a deliverer for Israel. So what do you do with that? Well, you kind of play it out. You obey the Lord in your life where you're at right now and you see what God's going to do. But you also wait upon him preparing yourself for those days. So the day he becomes kind of a free man, he walks out and he sees a Hebrew slave fighting with an Egyptian. And you know what he does? He puts the Egyptian to death. He's delivered that guy. Except what has he done to do that? He's murdered him. And so you can see that he realizes he's a deliverer for God's people. 
and yet he does it the wrong way, God has to do some humbling work on Moses, right? He's called by God, but he needs to be changed by God to be ready to be used by God. We're all that way. And so Moses, for 40 years, because he killed that man and he was afraid of being put to death by Pharaoh, he flees Egypt. And he goes out into the desert of Midian. And for 40 years, he herds sheep. Little did he know that that was the way that God was going to prepare him and remove some of the junk from him and humble him to bring him back into Egypt and to deliver God's sheep into a wilderness that they would wander in for 40 years. He was going to need the skills he learned while he was in the wilderness. So God does a work in us to use us, but sometimes we've got to be patient until he's done preparing us. And sometimes, like in my case, what God has to do is he has to prepare you and change you while you're in front of everybody. And so my life is not perfect either. And when I screw up, everybody sees it. But the beauty of that is, is you get to see that I'm not perfect yet. So if God can change me, he can change you guys. King David was the same way. He wasn't perfect when he was called to be the king of Israel. But God prepared him in the sheep fields. He was wrestling tigers and bears, oh my, against it, away from his sheep. He was going to defend and he was going to take land for the people of Israel. So God works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. If you're going through something that's hard and you feel like, man, this seems like God's just knocking junk out of me and it hurts, realize he's doing that because before there's any big way that God can use you, he has to prepare you for it. And that preparation oftentimes will hurt and it will go through suffering. But the beauty is, is that God will use it for his glory. So, verse 14 he says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, as you hold fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So there's a lot there. Paul writes these long sentences, and he, I think he uses way more commas than you're supposed to. He writes kind of like I do. Like you're like, another comma? And you're still going? Where's the period? But Paul writes here something he's telling the Philippians is, number one, as you are, what we said earlier, uh, doing nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than yourself, let each one of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. As he's saying that, this is the theme then you can go on to what he's saying now. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? Because you're supposed to esteem others better than yourself. So you can bring glory to God. If you are complaining and disputing amongst yourselves, God's not glorified in that. Just this week, um, my department at U.S. Tool got in trouble. Got a little hiney whooping. We needed it. We hadn't been completing our work, and 4 o'clock comes around, we're, we're out the door. I'm done. But we're salary, and the boss is calling us on that. Like, look, your salary, and there's extra work that needs to be done. We need to get it done. Well, we weren't thinking about the effect of what we were doing. We were thinking about, hey, it's 4 o'clock, and i got a life outside of this place, and I want to see the sunlight for an hour, right? I mean, it's, it, that's the way we think. We're like, okay, I'm thinking about me. Except there's 400 people in the plant that depend upon us quoting work. So what the boss said that stung was, you guys are leaving early, 
Don't you know we have a department that depends on you that's on shared work right now? They're being sent home. They're laid off. There's work in there that you guys could have got done. They could have done. They could have had a day's work. Ouch. Well, we were thinking about ourselves. We weren't thinking about the other department. So what he's saying, don't complain, don't dispute. Of course, that was for me that morning. I told some of you, I'm on the way to work. I'm thinking about this passage on Tuesday. I get there, we get this little talking to. First thing after you leave a meeting where the boss kind of gets onto you, what's the first temptation? You want to talk to everybody that got chewed out with you and go, hey, that sucked, didn't it? You know, and, and <laughs> but I heard that verse in my mind, don't complain and dispute. Move on, submit to your earthly master. And so he says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. We don't get to live our salvation in the midst of a perfect generation. We get to live our salvation out and work it out as we live amongst a crooked and a perverse generation of which we were once a part of it. And sometimes we still struggle with being a part of it, right? So we shine as lights in the darkness when we don't complain and dispute and God shows us to be blameless and harmless as we live unto him among whom he says you shine as lights in the world. We don't get to go off to a monastery and live by ourselves and hole away. That's not what it's supposed to look like. Jesus said, I want you, you are the sight, salt of the earth. You are the light that is shining in a dark place. When you live obedient to the Lord, they see me. That's what he's saying. And so we have this command, this this exhortation, go and live like this. And Paul is saying this. He never mentions his name, but he's saying, this is what I've done. This is how I live. This is why God's used me so magnificently. But Paul's not saying, hey, look at me and how great I am. He's saying, when God filled me with his Holy Spirit and I was convicted to live this way, he shines in the dark world through my life because I'm submitted to following him. And then he says, as you hold fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Hold fast to the word of God. Make it your anchor. It's the only thing that does not change in this life. God's word does not change. And so when we know it, when we obey it, it saves us day by day. It keeps us from train wrecks. It keeps me from mouthing my boss and getting fired. It's that simple. How how do I know? Because I lived it this week. God's always working it in me too. But the beauty of it is, is if you will hold fast to the word of life, he will shine through you and you will be changed little by little. And he says, not only that, but Paul says, and I will be encouraged. Paul needs encouraged too. Pastors need encouraged too. And when I see you guys living and obeying the commands of the Lord, even in small ways, I'm encouraged to keep going. How you live out and work out your salvation, obedient to the Lord, affects me too. I see God realistically living in and through you. And he says that. He says, um, So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I haven't worked for nothing is what he's saying. He says, Yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I'm glad And I rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. 
And he's referring to what they would know in the Jewish society, especially from Numbers chapter 15, verse 1 through 10, where the drink offering was specified. If you're ever reading the book of Numbers or Leviticus, I know you guys enjoy that. In there, there's all these offerings that they make. You're always like, what's the point in that? Well, the drink offering was a thank offering. It, was just some, it wasn't something you had to do. It was something that if you wanted to go a little extra and say, Lord, I'm just so thankful to you. You didn't just sing another worship song or give a little more in the, in the tithe box. What you would do is you would say, hey, Lord, I'm just so thankful. So on top of the sacrifice you're already making that you needed to make for your sins, you would pour out this drink offering on it, and that aroma that arose from it would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord is the idea. Much like when you pour some sort of liquid over the barbecue you're doing, and you smell it, and the smoke just mixes with the, and it's just, it's a pleasing aroma. And the Lord gets pleasure from our thanksgiving offerings. And so if that is the case, Paul says there, if I am being poured out as a drink offering, which you don't get a drink offering back, like you pour it out and it's gone, right? You can't drink it yourself. And Paul says, if I am, in fact, getting ready to be poured out completely as a drink offering, and he's in prison, he thought, hey, I could be put to death, then I'll have rejoicing, I'll have joy, because I'll know that even though I'm being put to death for my faith, I didn't labor in vain. I didn't stick my head out of, the, out of the ditch and start serving the Lord in vanity. It meant life to others and their salvation is being worked out and they're being lights. And even if I go to be with the Lord, they're going to continue on in the faith and pass it on to the next generation. It was worth it to me is what he says. So, real quickly, we'll read through our two next examples. Verse 19, he says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. See, he's going to give another example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy was half Gentile, half Jew. His mom was a Jew. His dad was a Gentile. Paul was full Jew. And then he gives an example of Epaphroditus, who was a Gentile. He had no history of faith in the Lord in his family line. So I love that he, even in this little thing, he's giving examples. Jesus, he gives a Jew a Jew slash Gentile, a half-breed in many people's minds, and then he gives a Gentile. And so he gives these examples, and all of them are not considering themselves only, but they're serving others. They're living for others, and it costs them. Blessing others is sacrificial. It's not as simple as just thinking of someone. It's actually putting yourself out there. I am very thankful to you guys for the practical service you gave to our church yesterday, you gave up a Saturday. That's not a small thing to me. I know what Saturdays are worth. I know what days off are worth. Because I get one a week. You know? But I'm so thankful to see you guys using your day off. Even if it is just one once in a while. To serve the word. Because God is pleased with that. He sees that you're serving his kingdom. He sees that you're not just living for yourselves, but you're considering others. He says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know about your state. He's, he's sending Timothy, and then he knows Timothy's going to come back and tell him how they're doing. He couldn't just call. He couldn't send an email. He couldn't Skype. He couldn't FaceTime. Whatever it is, he couldn't do that. He had to send a person to do that, and that person has to be willing to lay down their life for a time to travel from Rome to Philippi and then back again. And then he says, 
um, sorry. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. He didn't have anybody else to send but Timothy. He says, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also get to come shortly. But he's just pointing to Timothy as another example of someone who's willing to lay down his life, even for a short term, to go and check on the Philippians and come back and tell Paul, so that Paul might have joy knowing about their condition. And in the same way, he talks about Epaphroditus. He says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. This is a balanced individual. Just real quick, a, a devotional thought. Epaphroditus is described as a brother in the Lord. He's described as a fellow worker in the Lord. And he's described as a fellow soldier. And every Christian should be these three things. A brother a member of the body of Christ, a family member, a worker, someone who does the work of the ministry in some form or fashion, someone who serves the, the kingdom of God, but also a soldier. We talked about a couple weeks ago about defending the faith and, and taking on the shield, all of the stuff talked about in Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the, the armor of God and battling for the kingdom of God. Not knocking people down with a, a broadsword or your Bible, but defending the truths that we hold dear and standing up for what we believe in and telling others about it when they're really living in a lie and we want to help them be brought out of that lie and out of bondage. And so he says, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, but also, he is your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. They had sent Epaphroditus to come and check on Paul because they knew Paul was in prison. They were concerned for him. They had a love for him that said, hey, we want to send somebody to you to check and see how you're doing. But when he came to do that, Paul felt loved just by somebody showing up and saying, hey, how are you doing? And when he did that, he was encouraged he was a messenger from the Philippian church. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed, he ministered to my need, he says in verse 25. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. While he had a heart to be with Paul, he also wanted the Philippians to be encouraged because they sent Epaphroditus. And while he was on his trip, it was a very long journey, he got sick to the point of almost dying. So this man, Epaphroditus, didn't consider his own needs, but he was willing to put himself in harm's way to encourage Paul and to encourage the Philippians. And he almost died because of it. It almost cost him his life. Verse 27, it says, For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says, if Epaphroditus was sent from you, he got sick and then died with me and never got to go back and tell you how I was doing, it would make me doubly sorrowful. So Paul, their, their hearts are all tied together. They care for one another so much that their life and their death, it just tugged at them. And I have to tell you, many times I'm not that soft-hearted towards people. You know, <laughs> Kelly told me somebody had passed yesterday and she's like grieved. I just wasn't. 
And I felt bad because I'm like, man, am I that hard? Am I that unfeeling that I can't be sorrowful for, you know, this man that I know and he just lost his mom? He's already lost his dad this year. But they were so knit together, the Philippians and Paul. And Paul didn't really spend that much time with them. He just cared deeply for them. And I think it's because where your treasure lies, there your heart lies also. When your treasure is in the kingdom of God and investing in individual souls, when those souls aren't doing very good, it, it grieves you. It hurts you. You want them to be doing better. And, and you care enough to tell them that. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful because you know he's doing okay is the idea. Verse 29, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life in order to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. He was your ambassador. He loved me like you guys wanted to do is what he's saying. He risked his life to bless somebody in the body of Christ. And I think that's an amazing thing. When we're willing to sacrifice in some way or another to bless another brother or sister in the Lord, the Lord's pleased with that because he likes to see his kids get along. But he's also blessed because you're living out the same thing that Jesus did for us. You're following his pattern. These men were not great men. They were godly men because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were surrendered to his calling on their life. So let me ask you, what has God called you to? How has he called you to serve? I would say that he's called you to serve without selfish ambition, in humility, esteeming each other more importantly than others, than yourself, excuse me. He says, let each one of you not look only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. There's an Old Testament prophet that talks about this. He, uh, I can't think of his name right now. That's a great example, right? And, uh, but basically what was happening in that time in Israel was the, the house of the Lord was falling and it was just falling to pieces. It was old. Nobody had been ministering. Nobody was giving offerings so that they could keep the building up. Nobody was serving in the temple. And because of that, uh, this prophet was raised up by the Lord to speak to them. And he said this to them. He said, you guys' homes and everything around us is going great, but nobody is investing in the house of the Lord and it's falling to shambles. And because of that, God's name isn't glorified. It looks like no one cares about the Lord. Well, in that day in Israel, nobody did care about the Lord. They only cared about themselves. But the beauty is, is that when he called them to repent, they started doing it again. They started investing in the house of God. Now, let me bring this around, though, because he wasn't talking about the building. The Old Testament, the house of God, the place that they worshipped, was a picture of the body of Christ that's built up out of living stones. It's not about the building. We've got a new building. We've got this place still. It's never going to be about the building. It's always about you guys. It's about each one of you are blocks in the building of Christ. You are the sanctuary. Christ resides in you. And if we don't invest in one another... Maybe do a little tuck pointing one in, once in a while. Consider how each other's doing in the Lord, then we're not building each other up. If we're not investing in one another, the house will fall down and it will fall to disrepute. And so that's the case. We need to love one another. We need to serve one another like Christ has first served us. And when we do that, others will see that. They want to be a part. 
They'll want to be involved in the kingdom of God. They'll want to know this Jesus that's compelled us to love one another because groups that get together regularly don't love each other because they get sick of one another. But in the body of Christ, that was never meant to be the case because the Lord is the one that constantly renews the relationships and builds one another up. And so we're going to take communion this morning. And we're going to take communion because we do that at the first of every month. But we're also going to take it in consideration of what God has done for us and how we can serve one another. Communion was laid out in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul wrote this. Now Jesus instituted it, but Paul explains it a little bit better in this passage. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he took the bread, he gave thanks to the Father, and he broke it, which was symbolic of what he did with his life. Thank you for my life, Father. Now I'm going to let you break it, and it's going to be the bread of life for all those who trust in it and take it as their own. But then he says, in the same manner, he also took the cup, After supper, this cup of wine they had, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when you think of communion, don't think about this supper that we're taking that Jesse and I put together this morning. Think about it as Jesus is reminding you of the blood and the body he's prepared, given thanks for, broken, and poured out for us to eat of it, to take it in, and to bring it to its full conclusion. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what you're doing is you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes because he's going to return. Therefore, he says, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So there's a thought there. We need to examine our own relationship with the Lord. Are we where we need to be? Now, many times I've heard folks say, well, I'm not going to take it then because I'm not where I need, I'm not right. But that's not, that's not the invitation. The invitation to the Lord's Supper is not so much to go, well, I'm not right, so I won't take it. The invitation is, if you're not right, get right. Here's an opportunity. Today is the day to do that. Don't let the sun go down. He says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning that this is the Lord's body. Now, we don't believe that it physically becomes the Lord's body, transubstantiation, or anything like that. This is symbolic. But what he says, for this reason, many are not examining themselves. They're taking the Lord's Supper, and because of that, they're weak and sick. And in that day, some of them had died. Because the salvation they had been given, they were wasting it, and they weren't living it out. And so the Lord said, it's time for you to come home before you do any more damage to my name, my reputation. So he says, take it worthily. That's the exhortation. Take it worthily. Examine yourselves. See if you truly are in the faith, if you're willing to obey the Lord. And if you failed this week or if you failed multiple times this week or just this morning, whatever, get right with him. Just repent. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to change you. He can do that. If he did it with these three guys, I guarantee he can do it with you. Paul was persecuting Christians. He hated Christ. He was adamantly against him. 
But God changed his heart. And now he's willing to die for the body of Christ. So examine yourselves this morning. We will uh, sing a song. And during that time, you guys can come up and grab the elements.